Well, happy Father's Day. Yeah. Moms get all the hyper-spiritual, love you, tear stuff. Dads would just get the one about dad jokes, I guess. But happy Dad's Day to you. Hope you had a good one. Uh, my, my daughter got a hold of me this morning. My daughter, I got a card from my daughter yesterday. I said, I got your card. She goes, it arrived kind of early. I'm like, well, tomorrow's Father's Day, and the mail doesn't get delivered. She goes, well, I didn't want it to come Monday because it'd be too late. And I'm like, somewhere along the line, that's daughter logic, I guess, that Saturday's too early and Monday's too late. But hopefully all your dads, your kids got a hold of you somehow. If you're a guest, we're so glad you're here. I'm David. I'm the pastor. Appreciate so much the, the gals filling in. Brian, our worship leader, still is having some uh, throat issues he's got to recover from. And so they, they led, and, and they do a phenomenal job. And i got to be honest, I, I've kind of told Brian he needs to take a few more weeks to relax and get back in slowly. The girls are doing fine. Sometimes you can just let them go. Uh, we're in a study of the book of Jude this summer. going to go through uh, the middle of July. And as I've shared with you, and hopefully you've read it. If you've come already, if you're first time, and I'll switch you've read it recently. But if you've been coming for the last week or two, I hope you've read through the book of Jude. It's a very short book. It's right before the book of Revelation. And uh, Jude was going to write, as we have shared already, about the common salvation they had, a really encouragement. But instead, Jude had to write about false teachers who had come into the midst of the church. And so he was writing about that. So what we've seen in Jude so far, Jude, the brother of Jesus, is that we have seen that Jude is writing all about Jesus, that Jude's book, Jude's life, Jude wants us to know that life is all about Jesus. And as a follower of Jesus and as a church, when false teachers come into our life or come into the life of the church or threaten the church, then sometimes we are called into the conflict. And so the next few weeks, we're going to look about those who caused that conflict within the church through their false teaching. And today we come to Jude, verses 5, 6, and 7, to see those who rebelled. We're going to look at the people who have rebelled and see how God will deal with them. And so here we go, Jude, verse 5. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving the people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who do not keep their own domain, but abandon their proper abode or home. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So what I want you to see from the message today is this. You cannot live in rebellion against God and not face God's judgment. You cannot live your life rebelling against God in false teaching or false practice or whatever and not eventually face God's judgment. So we come today to a very difficult passage. Not only these verses, but the subsequent verses that we'll see over the next two weeks, verse 5 through verse 16. Some of the most difficult verses in all of Scripture. So if you're a first-time guest with us, welcome for coming on Sunday when we deal with what may be the hardest couple of verses in all of the New Testament to truly, really understand. And part of the reason is, is that what Jude does, and Jude is writing to Christians, probably mostly from a Jewish background. But these are Christians who have false teachers who came mostly from a pagan background. And he's writing to them, and what he does is he references some of the books that are not found in either the Old or New Testament, but that formerly these Jews, 
when they were Jewish, before they became simply believers, but they were Jewish believers, Jews, that they had had in their life, that they looked at, that they kind of read, the things that they believed. And so he's using what we call non-canonical sources. The word canonical simply means part of the canon. He's using books that are not in either Old or the New Testament. He's doing this to prove a point. Now, in doing this, it makes these verses somewhat obscure for us and somewhat difficult uh, to understand. So let me just share a few words with you about trying to understand Scripture, what we call interpreting Scripture, understanding Scripture, recognizing that whatever passage you read, we need to understand exactly what the author meant. Passages only have one meaning. It's the meaning the author intended. It's not the meaning we give to it. And you hear people say, well, that's your interpretation. This is my interpretation. Well, that's not how it works. The only interpretation that matters is the original interpretation. So there are various things we do when we come to a passage to try to understand it. Uh, you know, we understand that the, the, the books are written in, in two languages, mostly Greek and in Hebrew. You have to translate them into Greek and Hebrew. You don't, but somebody has to. And then you've got to begin to understand it. So let me give you two of the principles. There are several principles, but two of the principles that come in handy. And they're these, that context is everything. And you always interpret the obscure in light of the clear. Most importantly, in any passage, the context is what matters most of all. There's the context of the Bible as a whole. There is the context of the Old, the context of the New Testament, the book. The context involves who wrote it, who he wrote it to, why he wrote it, and when he wrote it. You need to understand that, and that's the ultimate guide is the context. But in addition, we must also realize that when you come to obscure passages, like the one we come to today... You have to let passages that are clearer, that are obvious, dictate your understanding. In other words, if you come to a passage and you walk out of that passage with the bizarre or strange understanding that seems to contradict the clearest parts of Scripture, you not interpret it correctly. Now, some things are absolutely clear. You know, we, we know that in the Old and New Testament teaches us that God created everything. We know that. We know that the cross, I've said before, the Bible is clearest at the cross. The clearest and easiest thing to understand is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins on our behalf. He died, he was buried, and raised back to life. That's clearly taught. Those things guide us in what we believe. Now, in the book of Jude, the context is very simple. Jude was writing because false teachers had come in and these false teachers were corrupting the people. And what they taught, as we saw last week, was licentiousness, or that any sexual act was okay, that anything they did, they practiced any kind of weird, whatever strange, absolute boundaries. There were none. They could do whatever because they had been saved by grace, because God's grace had saved them, and because they had experienced the grace of God, and they were free in that grace. They were free to live however they want. This is obviously a false teaching. So we come to these verses. So, so let me just share this with you so you'll know. You always need to know where your pastor comes from. I think that's important, or the person who's preaching from you. So here's the thing. I come to Jude in a manner that is consistent with how I approach every book in the Bible. I come to Jude in a manner that's consistent with everything. It doesn't matter if they're Gospels, Paul's letters, Genesis, you know, a book like Ecclesiastes, which is strange. It's the same. Revelation is the same. Next week, excuse me, next month, we're having what we call a deep fry. If you're from the New York Church, every summer on one of the Friday nights, usually the last one in July, this is July 30th, we go through a book of the Bible or a section of the Bible, like the Sermon on the Mount. We go through it in what we call a deep fry. We look at it closely and carefully. And this year, you know, from 630 to, to 10, this year it's a um, book of Revelation. And when I do that, I'm going to approach Revelation the same way I approach, say, the book of Matthew. Same way. Because of that, some of you, if you come, many of you will hear Revelation taught in a way you've never heard it taught before. 
And some of you will begin to understand the book of Revelation for the first time in your life because it can be a very confusing book. And everything you've heard about it confuses you even more. That's because we tend to abandon how we approach Scripture. So keep that in mind. We always approach Scripture the same. With that in mind, you cannot forget this because we're coming to some unique verses in the next three weeks. Never lose sight of the fact that Jude is dealing with false teachers and those who reject Jesus to follow them. He is not dealing with angels. He is not dealing, as we'll see next week, with the body of Moses. If you read on, you'll find that, but don't read on right now. He is dealing with false teachers and those who reject Jesus to follow the false teachers. With that in mind, he's going to talk about people of Israel, the angels, and the pagans in these next three verses. So verse 5, that's what it says. Now I desire to remind you that you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving the people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. He says, I want to remind you. You already know this, but I'm going to remind you anyways. Now, he's probably talking to people who predominantly as Christians came out of a Jewish background. So he's talking about things that they should know fairly well. The Lord saved the people out of the land of Egypt. The people he saved were the Israelites. They were captives in Egypt. Egypt was the most powerful nation and empire in the world at that time. They were slaves. God saved them. God delivered them. And then subsequently, it says, eventually, those same people he saved, he destroyed them because they did not believe. Now, what is he talking about? What's he referencing? Well, in Numbers chapter 14, the people of Israel were poised to go into the promised land. God saved them out of Egypt to get them into the promised land. And he said, since I saved you, trust me, he saved them from the most powerful empire in the world. They didn't do anything. They ought to have a lot of confidence that God can handle the Canaanites. But instead, when the spies went in, two spies came back, Joshua and Caleb, and said, we can take these people. The other ten spies came, no, man, they're too big, they're too strong, we can't win. Even with God on our side, we can't win. So the people rebelled against God and decided not to go take the Canaanites. As a result, God said, everyone over the age of 20, except Joshua and Caleb, will not enter the promised land. They will be killed in the wilderness at some time as judgment because of disobedience. The people of Israel disobeyed God. These were God's people. They disobeyed him. God judged them. So we ought to understand that anyone who disobeys God, who rebels against God, will face that judgment. It would be really nice from my perspective if Jude had stopped right there, because then I wouldn't have to come to this next verse. But instead, Jude decided just to write a little bit more. Holy Spirit led him, so I understand that. So here's where we're going to spend about the next eight or so minutes. Verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. The word angel translates the word in the Greek and in the Hebrew. That means messenger. Angels are basically messengers. They're servants of God. Now, we don't know that much about angels. We think we do. There are people who write entire books all about angels, and most of what they write, they just made that stuff up because they really don't know that much. What we know is very little. Well, here's what we know. Angels compose a group of created beings that are fundamentally different than humans, whether it be the word angel and angels themselves, whether it be the seraphim and cherubim we see in Isaiah chapter uh, 6, whatever. They're different. They're They're, they're asexual beings. They have no gender, even though sometimes they appear as inhuman as males for the purpose of of helping us and communicating and relating to us. They they have no capacity to reproduce because they don't marry or they're not given in marriage. They're of a different substance than us. They're not the same as we are. They're different. I might put it this way somewhat crudely. They're not carbon-based life forms. They don't function in the same level as we do. As such, we know that they serve God, and they absolutely are there to serve him. 
And beyond that, we don't know a whole lot more except bits and pieces we read. And that makes it kind of interesting who they are. But here's what we're told by Jude. There's a group of angels that did not keep their own domain. That word domain means authority. Their spear of service. Instead, they abandoned, they deserted their proper abode, their home. They, in other words, they left what they were supposed to do. God had called a group to do a particular service, and they abandoned it. They left it to go do their own thing. He says, Jude does, that he, that it's God, has kept them in eternal bonds or change under darkness or gloom because a judgment's going to come on a great day. That day may be when we're judged, you know, the final consummation of all everything. We don't know. But at some point, these angels will face a judgment. Until that time, they are kept in restraint in a type of judgment of itself because of their disobedience. So here's what we know. This is what matters. Without knowing the details of their rebellion, they rebelled against God, just like Israel rebelled. And because of their rebellion, they're being punished. Now, it may be that in um, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, they, they may give some light about when Satan rebelled, the angels went with him, maybe. But that's, what, that's good. That's what we know. We know they rebelled. I am absolutely comfortable with being just that. Except it appears that Jude, in that verse, took that information from a book called First. Enoch. And first Enoch is one of several books that we know of that were written between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament in the intertestamental period. We call those books pseudepigrapha. That means false writing. Some are called apocryphal because of the type of literature. But what it means is this. These are books that may be attributed to certain authors. They attributed the first Enoch to Enoch, but Enoch obviously didn't write it because Enoch had been gone for hundreds and hundreds, over a thousand years. So these are books that people would read and try to understand, but they weren't considered scripture. The Jews did not consider First Enoch to be scripture at all. Jude will probably reference First Enoch. Maybe we could assume next week the assumption of Moses. We'll get into that next week. I'll refer to First Enoch again in two weeks. Possibly a little bit of Jubilees and maybe a tad of the book, The Testament of Naphtali. We, know, we don't know for sure because he didn't tell us, but it appears that way. And when he references the book of Enoch, he's not saying that it's sacred scripture. He's not saying you ought to go read Enoch and believe it. He's saying, you guys read Enoch, and so let me tell you a story from Enoch. It's not uncommon what we do. Paul does it. In the book of Titus, Paul had sent Titus to Crete to solve a problem in Crete. And the Crete people were difficult. The church was struggling from false teachers. In the first chapter, verse 10 through 13, Paul says, you know, these Christians, they're difficult. They're the false teachers have come. And he describes them. And then he said, even one of their own prophets writes that Cretans, Cretans are gluttons. Cretans are liars. They, they are, they're uh, dishonest. They're evil. And he describes them that way. Now, Paul, in quoting this book, isn't saying that this pagan writer who wrote this has sacred scripture. He's using it to leverage why he needed to send Titus to Crete. Because everybody knows, even their own, how they are. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul most likely takes a hymn and takes that hymn and uses it to describe the glory of Christ. That does not mean the hymn he took that was being sung or recited is scripture, but Paul took it because it proved a point or it illustrated something in his behalf. The same thing happens in the Old Testament in several places. I do it all the time when I preach. When I preach on the flood, which I haven't done here, I'll refer to the Gilgamesh epic. It's a Babylonian account of the flood, not because it's scripture, but because it helps to show that different groups believed in floods. This is what we do. We do things to connect. And so it appears that Jude 
took First Enoch to connect with these people. Now, the passage he took in First Enoch, dealing with the angels falling, in Enoch, and in only in Enoch, and let's say for this, our purposes, it references the book of Genesis, chapter 6. When the sons of God fell in love with the daughters of men, married them, produced a mighty people, Enoch says it was angels loving humans producing giants. So that's what it says. And that's what a lot of people believe, and that's what get taught us all the time. So to understand all this and the accuracy of whether or not that's not true, because we're in Jude, I've got to go back to Genesis a bit. Genesis was written to demonstrate the plan of God and his salvation. So Genesis has two sections, chapter 1 through 11, chapter 12 through 50. In chapter 12, Abraham's introduced. And Abraham's introduced to say, this is God's plan of saving mankind, ultimately through Jesus. Jesus says, I have fulfilled what Abraham promised. So that's, we know that. So we need, need, man needs salvation. Why does man need salvation? Because chapter 1 through 11 tells us we're sinful. We're evil. In fact, in chapter 6 of Genesis, in verse 5, it says that man was so wicked that his heart was always evil and always deceitful all the time. And in verse 6 says, God was sorry he made man and he grieved because of the wickedness of man. Where did this wickedness come from? How did man get so evil? Genesis chapter 3, sin comes into the world. Genesis chapter 4, sin begins to grow. And more and more people become sinful. You get to Genesis chapter 5, there's a genealogy listed of the righteous and the unrighteous as they're together. And then you come to chapter 6. In a watershed moment, Moses writes that the sons of God looked down and looked over at the daughters of men and wanted them and married them. And these mighty warriors were produced, these great men of evil and war and wickedness. And because of that, man was wicked all the time. Now, if you just read that, you would probably understand that sons of God refers to a group of people and the daughters of men. Well, what group of people? Well, the most natural reading up to that point, there's no mention of angels anywhere, it would be that righteous people, people who followed God, married unrighteous people, people who didn't follow God, and as a result, all of them became corrupted. That's the natural reading. That makes sense. Is there any place else in Scripture where we can see that happening? Well, yeah, in the people of Israel. God told the Israelites, when you go to the Canaan, don't marry the Canaanites. Don't marry them. If you marry the Canaanites, they'll corrupt you. The book of Judges, the people of Israel married the pagans. And what happened? They were corrupted. And they sinned and rebelled against God. That's what that means. The result of that were people who were bent on war, including great war leaders, the Nephilim. That's when the world became wicked. That's the natural, makes sense understanding. But some think that the Son of God refers to the sons of God, angels. And the daughters of men refer to humans. And that angels intermarried with humans and produced giants. Now that sounds to me bizarre. Very bizarre. I mean, think about what I know about angels. Angels are asexual beings. They have no gender. There's no male or female. So how in the world would they even lust after humans? And much less, how would they make that relationship happen? Did they become, did they possess men? Did they become, did people become demon-possessed? It doesn't explain that. That doesn't make much sense. Why would God hold humanity accountable for the acts of angels and their wickedness? Did they shapeshift and take a form? And if they did take a form and fool and deceive the humans, how, how did they reproduce? They're two different species. You don't make species. Think about this. You have dogs and you have cats, but you don't make cats and dogs. They're different parts of creation. Angels and humans are different aspects of creation. How in the world does that happen? The, the, the the results of believing that angels came after humans are so bizarre, we end up in the world of mythology. 
You know what mythology? There's these things called demigods, where the gods mated with humans, and that's how you got Hercules and Perseus, and that's how you got uh, Romulus and Remus and, and the guys who founded Rome. We look at that and say, that's bizarre. And why do we take that unnecessarily to Genesis? Makes no sense, but Enoch did. And in doing that, the people in the inner biblical time began to read Enoch, and they began to accept that. So you get to the time of Jesus. And some of the Jewish believers still held on to that understanding, even though it was probably not accurate. So what does you do? He doesn't say, you're right, I agree with you. He says this, in your belief system, in your belief system, since you believe this, well, remember, the angels were punished by God. All of us have things in the culture we come from that we hold dear. I come from San Antonio, so the Alamo. Every kid growing up in San Antonio understands the Alamo. The Alamo's a real thing. But we, we read the Alamo. We walk to the I walk into the Alamo. I, tears come down. My, it's the only time I cry when I walk in the Alamo. Because of, I, I think of all that I've taught, the bravery, the, all the courage, all that stuff. Now, it's a true event, and there's true stuff there, but we mythi- mythologically make that more significant than it is. We romanticize it and when you come from San Antonio. That's what these people did. So all Jude is doing is leveraging what they believe to say, since you believe this in your own belief system, the angels rebelled against God and were punished, which actually happened because whether you believe that system or not, that's what occurred. At some point in creation, angels rebelled. It doesn't mean they did it in Genesis 6 and all that goes with it. Having said all of that, I still wish Enoch would have stopped, but no, he wants to go further. He wants to go to verse 7. So here we go to verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal life. Now he comes to the world of pagans. He's talked about Israel. He's talked about the angelic. Now he talks about the pagans. And there was no greater example of the end result of the extremes, of the inevitability of what happens to pagans in Sodom and Gomorrah in the cities around them. Over in Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah are the absolute epitome of pagan worship. And they involve themselves in every type of immorality. It says these were gross immorality. Some of them in strange flesh, sometimes called perversion. The word licentiousness that I talked about last week, which related to the false teachers, is the same thing as the gross immorality in the strange flesh. It speaks of every type of sexual activity and sin you can imagine. And so in their paganism, two things marked these Canaanite pagans. One was the sacrifice of their own children, which is something God abhorred. And the second was everything else they did immorally. Adultery, fornication, incest, homosexuality, bestiality. You can name all the things that God told Israel don't do. And God told Israel don't to do it because the pagans did it. That's what Sodom and Gomorrah did. So they experienced the punishment of eternal fire. That eternal fire means that when the fire came down from the skies, it so wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain that no one ever rebuilt on them. It just wasn't going to happen. It was a permanent destruction. So here's what you have. You have, in this passage about false teachers now, not angels, but false teachers. You have Jew using Israel, the angelic, and the pagans as an example of what happens when people rebel against God. We need to take that to heart today. Here's the thing. Churches in America are facing a rise in false teachers and teachings. We see that more and more happening in churches, happening in our own community. In fact, some of you 
are worshiping with us today because the church you love, the denomination you grew up in, has gone so far in teaching falsehood that you simply can't take it anymore. And I understand that. In churches, it happens. It happens to Christians. It happens to us. The false teaching comes in. What begins to happen is, is that in Christianity and, and in churches and in some whole groups, they begin to deny that Jesus is the only means of salvation or they deny the authority of Scripture. Other books are just as authority, uh, authoritative as Scripture and there's other ways to God. They deny the fundamental teaching of our faith. That only way you can come to God is through Christ. They practice universalism that in the end God will, will save everybody. And, and they basically embrace the culture around us in opposition to God. It's not that they invite people to come and encourage people from the culture to worship. We do that. We want anyone and everyone to come worship with us. But they embrace the culture in its opposition to God. And they allow the culture to come in and change their church away from God. Remember this, that God is immutable. He never changes. He is consistent in dealing with sin and rebellion. To be immutable means unchanging. And that's what Jude was saying. Jude was telling these people, hey, listen, 1,500 years ago, the people of Israel rebelled. Before that, the angels rebelled. And Sodom and Gomorrah, the pagans rebelled. What did God do? He punished them. Do you think it's going to be any different for you? If you think that you can take your false teaching, you can take your immorality, your licentiousness, and you can live however you want, and God will let you get away with that, you think that's going to happen? Not going to happen. Listen, you cannot change Christianity to fit your sin. Well, you can try. You can do it, but it won't work. Eventually, God will judge everyone. God will not allow you to rebel against him forever. He didn't do it with the false teachers. He didn't do it with people of Israel. He didn't do it with the angels. He didn't do it with the pagans. He won't do that to you and I, nor will he do it to people in churches who allow false teaching to come in. He is going to deal with that. As I like to say on many occasions, at some point God will settle all accounts. And you live in rebellion. You choose to move away from what God clearly teaches. This is what happened. So here's the thing. Quit blaming God for your rebellion against God. You chose to live this way. Quit blaming God for why you rebelled against him. You chose that. That's what the false teachers were doing. Here's what the false teachers said. God saves us by grace. By his free grace, we didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. He saves us. He is glorified. So we can now live however we want because God has to, by his grace, save us. He's already saved us. He has to keep forgiving us for whatever we've done. It's God's fault. Had God required us to be good, Had God required us to earn our salvation, this wouldn't happen. But because God freely chose to save us, he saved us from the paganism that we have. We can still live that way because God is obligated to save us. Now, that teaching is corrupt on the face of it. But they were blaming God for what they did. We do that today. People say, well, God made me this way. This is just how God made me. Well, God did make you. He did create you in his image. He did create you male and female, but he didn't create you to sin. He didn't create you to rebel against him. You chose that path. So don't blame God. Some people say, well, you know, I can never worship or follow a God who allowed this to happen, who lets this happen, or who do this, and fill in the blank. Normally, they fill in the blank with something they made up about God that's not even true. What I hear a lot of is, I can't worship a God that allows evil. Well, God allows evil because he allows you to sin. See, the alternative is the moment you sin, God destroys you, wipes you out. 
Not many people like that option because there'd be no humanity left. And then at the same time, you know, we want God to give us the freedom. I can't follow a God who puts so many rules and regulations on me. Well, if you don't want God to put rules and regulations on you, that means you want freedom. The cost of freedom is evil. You can't have it both ways. You're blaming God for something you chose. And then people, some say, well, Christianity is just irrelevant. In the culture we live, Christianity is not relevant. Well, if Christianity is not relevant, then, then how do you explain over in Africa, in so many Muslim countries, where leaving the Islamic religion and becoming Christian is paramount to a death sentence, certainly persecution, if not death, then every year, six to eight million Muslims abandon the Islamic faith to become Christians at the point of death. How is Christianity not relevant? How is it not relevant in our lives? That's foolishness. See, here's the problem. The problem goes back to Genesis chapter 3. You know what happens in Genesis 3? Sin enters the world. You know how sin enters the world? Because Satan said to mankind, Adam and Eve, hey, you will be like God. And you know what? We really like that being like God stuff. We want to be the God of our own life. And that's what happened. And so what the Israelites do, they didn't want to trust God. They knew what was best. And what was best was to not go in to the land of Canaan. So they say, God, we won't do it your way. We'll be God. What the angels do is the angels said, we're tired of serving you, God. We want to live for ourselves. We don't want to serve you anymore. We'll do it our way. What did the pagans do? The pagans said, God, we don't like the idea that there is one God out there. We want to live with absolute abandon to our own lust and immorality. We want to live our way. They all decided to do things their own way. And the false teachers were doing the same thing. We're going to live our life our way. Here's the thing. If God will punish Israel and angels for rebellion, why would he not punish us? Why? And we get the punishment pagans. Pagans should be punished. Right? Okay, we're good with that. But Israel, the angels, he's going to punish them. Why would he not punish us in our rebellion? And to those false teachers, the truth is simply this. God won't let this happen long. You can't live in rebellion against God and not face the consequences of that rebellion. And so at some point, you and I need to understand that we got to stop. We got to stop living in rebellion against God. We've got to stop thinking that we can live our own way. People have got to stop thinking they can come into the Christian faith and change it to fit their sinfulness and their rebellion and to make it relevant. God doesn't work that way. That's what Jude tells us. God will not let you rebel for long. Some of you in your life, you need to stop it. You need to quit rebelling against God. And the way to quit rebelling against God is to come to faith in Jesus. You need to trust Christ to be the Savior of your life. That's the first step. And you don't have to change your life to come to Jesus. But when you come to Jesus, your life will change. You will stop rebelling against God and you will live for his glory. And if you never trusted Christ to be your Savior, that's why he came. You can do that today as a follower of Christ. Jesus says, it's all about Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. In a moment when we have our invitation, you can come up here and give your life to Christ then. Or you can do it right now where you're at. Or you can catch us after the service or this week. But you need to give your life to Christ. Some of you are struggling with false teaching. And you may have grown up with it. When you grow up with false teaching, it's hard to get away from it. 
and you may need help. You may need to prayer. You may want one of us to pray for you and pray with you. But where you are, you need to ask God to help you move away from that false teaching. Maybe someone in your family or one of your close friends believes something false. Like we said last week, love them. Always love them. Pray for them. But maybe you know you need to talk to them and you want God to give you the courage and conviction to go do that. If you want to join our church, we'd love to have you join our church. I don't know what God wants you to do. But I do know this. You cannot rebel against God and not face the judgment of God. So today, commit yourself to being all about Jesus. Lord, we thank you for what you wrote. It's tough. and We kind of have to wade through it. And it's easy to get sidetracked. It's easy to go off in the wrong direction. But God, you have guided us to where we need to be through your Holy Spirit. Your Holy Spirit moved Jude to write it, and he moves us to understand it. And we understand we cannot live in rebellion. Because if we rebel against you, we will eventually face the consequences of that rebellion. So let us give our life to you. Let us trust Jesus to be our Savior. Let us abandon any false teaching or practice in our life and leave it behind so that we can serve you, love you, honor you, and glorify you. Father, speak to us now. Move in our life. Move in our midst so that when we walk through this place today, you'll be glorified by our lives. And Father, we will serve only Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Would you stand? We'll be here to greet you. Would you come?